When we first debated what topic to select for the third cycle of the Moral Courage Project, back in fall 2019, it was clear that in 2020, democracy was going to be all anyone was talking about. The country was bracing for a seismic election cycle, and all traditional elements of the democratic process itself seemed to be on the table. Active challenges to voting access, gerrymandered districts, a polarized electorate wading through disinformation, returning citizens vying for their rights, and the very real concern of whether or not the incumbent would permit a peaceful transition of power at all. Since everyone seemed to be in a zig, we decided to zag and pursue the stories we've laid out over the past five episodes. Though, the more we dug into these cases of toxic water, the more we encountered something we did not expect. The root causes were not located in the systems designed for treating or distributing the water. This was never really about cracked pipes or coal slurry, or levels of lead or arsenic. This was never really about water at all. The water crisis is actually a crisis, and a failure, of the American democratic system itself. I'm Grace Gibson. And I'm Desiree Bluthenthal, and this is Poison and Power, the Fight for Water, a Mural Courage Project, a production of the University of Dayton Human Rights Center and Proof, Media for Social Justice, Episode 6, Confluence. Let's not romanticize what democracy looks like in the United States. Black people have only had the legal right to vote for a little over 50 years and still face systematic challenges to exercising that right. District maps are drawn to protect the interests of the powerful. Dark money runs through shadowy organizations to influence the outcomes of elections in the legislative process. States with low populations have outsized influence in the U.S. Senate, which is responsible for confirming Supreme Court justices to lifetime appointments. Doubt and misinformation over the truthful outcome of the last presidential election persist punctuated by the January 6th violence at the U.S. Capitol that attempted to prevent the validation of the final vote count. These reasons and others give credence to arguments that question the standing of U.S. democracy given all these deeply anti-democratic features. Fundamentally, democracy is supposed to be a system for individuals and communities to articulate their needs and their grievances and control, to some degree, the conditions of their lives by choosing leaders to make policies and protect local interests. In Flint and Detroit, democratic rights were violated when the governor installed unelected emergency managers to seize authority over municipal operations. Across Appalachia, politicians and officials, senators and water board members, refused to hear the pleas and demands of water warriors, privileging corporate power and deferring to regional tycoons. When their communities were in need, but the traditional levers of democracy were denied to them, the storytellers in this episode built people power by and for themselves. Door to door, face to face, shoulder to shoulder. Like the point where multiple streams and rivers converge, communities come together in a confluence of strength and resistance to assert their autonomy over space, resources, and even their own health. That is what democracy looks like. Before there was a Flint water crisis, there was a Flint democracy crisis. In 2011, on the same day that voters re-elected Mayor Dane Walling, Flint was declared to be in the state of emergency based on the findings of a review board convened by the new governor, Rick Snyder. As explained earlier in episode 3, cities placed on this list had emergency managers installed to oversee a period of financial austerity. In practice, an unelected person who reports to the governor was appointed with broad authority over the municipal budget and operations. And I look back and think about it not only as a water crisis, but really more broadly as a governance crisis. You know, whether everyone in the United States agrees that water is a human right, virtually everyone agrees that everyone should have clean water. You know, there's a kind of maybe a philosophical difference there. And the fact that there are many communities and households that don't have clean drinking water, to me, is a governance crisis. It's not, it's not only a water crisis. It's a bigger governance crisis that involves you know, a whole variety of ways that we 
kind of segregate ourselves um, from each other and from each other's interests and needs and how uh, some factions of our society uh, that are still very much at work today are working to limit that role of the collective or, or the public. That's Dan Walling, who remained mayor while the emergency manager authorized the decision to switch Flint's water source from the Detroit River to the Flint River. A decision made solely to save money at whatever human cost. At a public event in April 2014, Mayor Walling pressed the button and switched the source and then infamously lifted a glass of water toasting, here's to Flint. And, you know, there's infamous photos of me, you know, pushing the button to start that process. Um, you know, I had every um, kind of expectation at that point that the water at the Flint treatment plant was going to be just as clean and healthy as what we were getting from Detroit. That was what uh, the Department of Environmental Quality officials, our own public works officials had all kind of said that this was, we're all under the Safe Drinking Water Act. This is going to, you know, be provided. And, and, I, and I trusted that. So, I mean, that's something I look back on with, with a great deal of, of regret. Um, but that was how I felt at the time. And that was what was being kind of described to me and to our community from those who were the experts in regulating, you know, drinking water for a thousand drinking water systems across the state of Michigan. And then as the, the complaints kind of rolled in, it's not that the city was, was unresponsive, although I think in many accounts you might, you might get that impression. Um, the, the framing of the problem was that the city's kind of infrastructure system was failing and that the age and weather and these variety of conditions had brought the city's infrastructure to a point where it, it was failing, um, which just meant that the kind of the diagnosis at that point was, was either, you know, intentionally or unintentionally wrong. And um, the things then that I was, you know, I and others were a part of in trying to respond to that, capital improvement planning and seeking grants for, for various kind of water line and pipe improvements, those weren't the things that were really driving the problem. Um, but that's what we understood at the time. And then as we kind of roll through the months and go into 2015, you know, it continues to be kind of one problem after another until we finally get this, you know, extraordinary group of, of citizen scientists and, and activists and, and ultimately doctors who are kind of examining this system from different perspectives and, and saying that, you know, this is, a, this is a real systemic failure of public health. You know, I look back on those different moments where I, you know, I don't think I made the right call or I don't think I said the right thing. Um, many of those cases, I wasn't the one making the final decision, uh, but I still have to live with, you know, how I understood the problems. Um, but I always, I was always trying, and, and I think what were incredibly challenging circumstances to, to figure out how to serve the community, how to improve you know, this, this very troubled municipal system. And then ultimately kind of there in those final weeks that I was in office, as I was running for reelection in 2015, what would have been my second reelection, and, and I lost to, uh, to then on a Dr. Uh, Mayor uh, Karen Weaver, who served one term and she just lost to another successor, uh, former city councilman and state representative Sheldon Neely. Politics in Flint are very, very tough um, business to be in. But um, we did pull, you know, people together in a way that did get kind of the city back onto the Detroit system. And, and a number of people have commented that, you know, all the things that subsequently had to get done through the emergency declarations, that at least, you know, as of October 2015, the water that was being properly treated with corrosion control and the other um, 
kind of elements were back in the system. So um, that, that's something that often kind of isn't noticed, um, but it's something that I take a lot of pride in that before, you know, I left office that, that, um, that the Detroit water was back in the Flint system and things were at least in one regard kind of starting to heal. Um, but I, I think throughout the emergencies, which I've experienced now as a resident, you know, and leader, although not as an elected official, I really strongly believe, and of course we're seeing it now with the pandemic and the way it's affecting our communities of color and our, our working class communities, especially in, in cities, um, that the kind of divisions and the sort of governance crisis that we saw firsthand in Flint, um, starting with you know the appointment of these emergency managers, that mentality is very much still with us in our society and, and I think holds a great deal of power within our governance systems. And, and I think we need to factor that in to our uh, understandings of, of not only just how the world works, but also what it will require of each of us who's interested in making a positive impact. Um, you can bring a lot personally but then what's happening in the world and context around you. I, I never imagined when I got elected in August of 2009 that we would have a governor who put an emergency manager in place that eliminated my authority and my salary and then would go on to make kind of decisions that were this catastrophic that I to some degree was assured, you know, and, and publicly put my name to because of those assurances. So I was still the elected mayor. Uh, I had a job description from the emergency managers that said I could work on citizen complaints and support the planning process and economic development, uh, do ceremonial kinds of activities. Um, but what I couldn't do was uh, do anything with personnel, anything with the budget, or anything with the city's legal matters. And if you can imagine for a moment, uh, the kinds of things that one needs to do to manage uh, a business or a public corporation, they're primarily budgetary, financial, legal, and, and employee human resource base. So all of those things were, were outside of my control. So I was in, in some ways, uh, a ceremonial kind of figure. I, uh, there were some activities I was involved in that went beyond that. Um, but that budget financial legal authority rested with the appointed emergency manager. I, I made a commitment to myself that, that I would treat it in a professional manner. Um, I, I really tried I tried to set aside the political policy differences I had with the governor or the legislature and, and not kind of take that out on the person who was appointed. Now, looking back, maybe I should have taken more out on that, on those individuals. Um, but I, I, I think in terms of my conscience and, you know, I have to put my head on the pillow each night. Um, I, I want to treat people with dignity and respect even if I kind of profoundly may disagree um, with, with them or even some things that they're doing. And it really disabled, you know, what, um, what's supposed to be this kind of productive, local, democratic, deliberative democracy. And, and it just kind of blew that whole thing up. Um, but yeah, the, the power differentials were just so, were so extreme. Um, and yeah, I, this kind of this decision to approach it in a more professional manner, I, I think, I think served the city well on a lot of cases. It, it didn't end up serving us well in terms of, you know, the water crisis. If one is going to counter a system that has all these different, you know, elements of injustice kind of built into them then it's going to take, you know, a scientist and a doctor 
and uh, an academic and uh, a neighborhood leader and a faith leader. And it, it just, um, it, it is a, I don't want to make it sound hard because it's, it's hard work. You know, it's hard work, but, but it's exceptionally difficult. Um, especially when the stakes are high. Um, when stakes are low, maybe there's some appearance. I mean, in a way it was like getting elected was the easy part, but I thought getting elected as a, you know, a, a young white guy in Flint um, was going to actually be hard. Um, but that turned out to be the easier enterprise, you know, knock on 30,000 doors, you know, have, you know, five house meetings in every ward meeting, give everybody your cell phone, like th those things I could do. Um, but then this bigger, this bigger kind of challenge that really was, like I said, I, a governance challenge, it ended up taking, I think that whole kind of suite of, of expertise and, um, you know, some city council members were, were sooner to be a part of that. I was a little later to be a part of it. Um, but, um, but I'd like to kind of think that uh, elected officials are also part of that solution too. I definitely continue to be kind of very interested in this democracy that we're in. Um, I think I learned a lot about how that democracy works. And I became, um, and I'm not kind of proud to say this, but it's true. You know, I'm much more skeptical of the popular democratic enterprise than I was uh, 10 years ago. Um, I don't think I'm any less committed to trying to make it work. But you know, I really just, I mean, I so up close and personal, not just as mayor, but then, you know, as a father in this community and as a neighbor and as a friend to people, um, you know, we just saw how absolutely horrible this, this kind of conspiracy of power, you know, turned out to be. And, and then, to see how limited the response was, even with, you know, a national emergency declaration. So, you know, what, what is it going to take? Um, that, that's really what I find myself kind of wrestling with. And, and I don't, you know, I think there's a lot of people who have a perspective on that. I, I think I have a unique one. Um, and I don't know exactly kind of where it's going to lead me personally, but, but I am, and it's like I'm an optimist at heart, but I'm I'm deeply, deeply um, distressed and distrustful now of of the especially the public systems that that are around us, and they're so consequential, and they're so meaningful for our our, our lives. From the beginning, it was clear to Flint residents what was going on. Nair Sharif, who we first met in episode one founded the Flint Democracy Defense League to mobilize the community against what she saw as the state takeover of their city. My work with the water crisis actually began with the democracy crisis. So in 2011, like we had this governor who was like in his first term at the time, Rick Snyder, and he had passed like a whole bunch of bills that basically attacked working families. <laughs> and so, including like the emergency manager law. So at the time when he passed it, it impacted two communities in a school district, it impacted um, Detroit Public Schools, the um, city of Pontiac and the city of Benton Harbor, because they already had like a emergency, they were already, those communities were already in school district was already in receivership. But like in, in um, I would say like, because there were a bunch of different bills happening at the same time, there were like coordination with a bunch of different groups because like alongside, you know, the emergency manager law, there was a lifetime limit on public assistance. And that was what I was actually working on <laughs> was, um, 
like around that and so like I know like what we decided to do we're like we're gonna we, like we did like these skill shares um, <laughs> and we're just like you know like we're gonna have to figure out ways for people to survive around this so we were like trying to do like kind of cr creative um ways for folks to kind of come together around like the lifetime limit on public assistance and the state of michigan had a version of the federal earned income tax credit and this homestead property tax credit which were refundable tax credits um and so the governor basically like cut those things <laughs> like things that people will actually get like as a check <laughs> like this would be straight cash you know <laughs> like but but he i mean and he did like a whole lot like taxing pensions so it was just like you know like there was a whole lot of work to be had <laughs> and so there were a lot of people who um who who like came who came together and it was like a so it was just like you know a crew of people who was coordinating demonstrations in Lansing. And so like we kind of heard about the emergency management stuff, but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily my priority or a couple of other people who eventually kind of coalesced in Flint. Uh, wasn't we were all there for the the public assistance stuff because we were doing a lot of stuff around, you know, like I did a lot of stuff like in my volunteerism and then some of the work is like working with marginalized populations working with poor people so we had like i was doing like art classes and public housing and just like really trying to do a lot of stuff around that so the emergency manager law um uh unelected state bureaucrat comes into your school district or municipality and takes over two branches of your government your executive and legislative branch so for a municipality, that's the mayor and city council or city commissioner, or however they 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 define that. And for the um, and for a school district, it's the superintendent and the school board. And so like these people just basically took like a three day class, like at Michigan State University, <laughs> like a weekend class, and then you could be, you know, a dictator, state dictator. And so like when the emergency manager comes in, like under the law, like they automatically zero out the salaries and responsibilities of those two branches. And the emergency manager makes a decision of what the responsibilities are going to be and what salaries they're gonna have. So not only does it shift like the power dynamics of these communities from these elected officials who are um, these elected officials who you know are supposed to represent the people who voted for them like they basically become employees of the emergency manager because they basically say these are your responsibilities and this is your salary and you got to do these responsibilities before you get your salary and and then the other thing is this happened because of fiscal distress i would say euphemism for fiscal distress um because really what it was i mean it was really two things one it was um uh, to protect the state's bond rating because after um it, it protected the state's bond rating and then it also um really punished communities for things that were outside of their controls and so like we were like working to uh you know do like this referendum to like overturn that particular law because we're like this is like some bullshit because where 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 anywhere in the United States do you lose your democratic rights because you're poor you know that or if you're saying that you're in debt you know that's basically saying like if you owe like credit card debt you can't vote like I mean, nobody gonna be voting, you know? <laughs> are you, you are you just in debt in general? And it's like that. That was like totally crazy because this is like kind of like a new, I would say a new version like voter suppression because instead of like, you know, what people think of voter suppression as big girly like white dudes or people with clan hoods like 
pushing black people away from voting polls and stuff like that. <laughs> Which is like, like you think of like you think it is like it's gonna be like it's gonna be like bananas. But this is like a way, instead of like that, which is like, you know, probably happened like in the 60s and stuff like that. But this is like, so you're able to vote for people, but they don't have no power. So it's like, oh yeah, so it's just like, kind of like a prop, like, oh, you're still able to vote. But then it's like, you don't have any power. And if you say all politics is local and you can make the biggest impact in communities you actually live in, then you're basically denying that, you know, to to like whole communities. And it was only implemented in black and brown communities, majority black and brown communities. So it wasn't, um, you know, like, imp- and, and it's not saying that, like, the argument is not like, well, we want like white communities to lose their democracy too. <laughs> like, because nobody should be losing their democracy. It's like, you know, but but we do know that The issue of local rule and autonomy can shape up as a struggle between a community and the state government, such as it was in Flint and Detroit. But corporations in the private sector also pose a serious and persistent threat to democracy. In Kentucky, the people we spoke to believe that elected and public officials, from Senator Mitch McConnell to members of the local water board, should be accountable to voters and residents of the state but by now, they don't expect it, nor do they depend on it. Barbie Ann Maynard, all the way back in episode one, describes Appalachians as red-headed stepchildren, overlooked, neglected, and dismissed. People we spoke with have all but given up on statewide and federal representation being the answer to their problems, turning increasingly to county and local authorities. Though, the other force to contend with in Kentucky are the companies and local barons who benefit from the water crisis itself. While outright privatization of the water supply is not a current threat, private interests do present a core challenge to access of this essential public good. According to Nina McCoy, who we first heard from in episode 3, either you can operate in a system driven by sheer profit motive, or you can have equitable access to water. But you can't have both. One of the things that we found is that it is very important to go to people's homes if you really want to find out what they think. Um, at first, University of Kentucky wanted to have this um, this meeting where you know they were just going to get people to come out and say what they thought about the water. And I'm like, you know, you better be careful because people are afraid to tell you. But when we showed up at their homes, they were not afraid to tell us how they felt about it. Um, and I was so surprised at how many people just like, sure, come on in. <laughs> you want to test my water? Sure, come on in. Um, you know, there were people who were like, eh, not today, but people were wanting this. Um, and there were times when you would ask them things. There was one time when the people were like, they looked around, they were in their own home and they whispered the name of the person who's in control, actual control. And I'm like, they're having to whisper in their own home this name. I mean, Voldemort, doesn't that remind you, he who shall not be named? I mean, it's it's sad. But it's it's traditional. But it's traditional, as my husband said, yeah. What was the name? Uh, Jim Booth. You didn't whisper. <laughs> You'll be in trouble. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like Jim Booth owes $2 million in taxes to this little county. But when the newspaper found out about that um, and the, and the uh, news media came here, they talked to the sheriff of the county who has talked for years about how he's not getting the money that he needs and you better get a biting, barking dog and, and carry a gun because we can't show up because we can't afford, you, you can't afford your sheriff. That sheriff gets on television and says, well, Jen's done a lot for this county and so we really can't, 
expect him to pay his taxes. They expect me to pay my taxes. Um, so yes, it, it is. And most people, if you go to their house, they'll say, Jim ought to pay his taxes, but you put them out on, in public and they're going to be like, well, Oh no, Jim's done a lot for this County, but he hasn't done anything for this County. You know, it's like, even with our slurry spill here, eventually Massey got fined $20 million by the environmental protection agency for every, everything, every fine they'd ever had for anything. I think there were 4,400 of them. So ours was basically, I think our part of that would have been about $400 or something. Um, and um, I don't know, it was, it was some ridiculous amount. And of course we got nothing for that. Um, there was $20 million that went into a pot, but it sure didn't help the people that got affected by any of that. That is one of the things that makes me so mad. Um, when they talk about, oh, I'm a capitalist, um, you know, well, if you're truly a capitalist, then you don't socialize the cost of doing business. And that's what they do. They've socialized the cost of doing business. The true capitalist has to pay for what they've done when they did it right then and there. And so if you want to say you're a capitalist, then, then stop taking any government money or any type of uh, tax deduction for bringing jobs. Uh, that makes me so mad. Job creators. That's evil. They're not job creators. They're, they're money makers. When we first got involved in this, the uh, water board, the commissioners, um, they had been there for many years um, and basically were saying, and, and of course, that's the more powerful people. That's that's who's on a water board, um, who is placed there by the county judge executive. Um, but um, so what happened was they, they just thought we were being ridiculous. And um, they acted like we were alarmists and we didn't know what we were talking about. And so, but what happened was, this is the third investigation into the water district by the Public Service Commission. So it started in 2002, which we didn't know about. There was another one in 2006 we really weren't aware of. But when this one was taking place, Mary Cromer got, um, got in touch with us and said, do you know that the Public Service Commission is investigating? And we were like, no. Well, she said, you can actually go and tell them what you think. So she took us to the meeting in Frankfurt. Um, about four of us uh, testified that day before the Public Service Commission, telling them our frustrations. Um, then the Public Service Commission, she said, why don't you have your meeting in Inez? And so she, they said, okay, we'll come to Inez. And they said, the water commissioners have to listen have to sit and listen to what the people say, and they have to respond to every question in writing. And so when we showed up, there were about 90 people there. Normally, uh, that, that's just amazing. Normally there would not be very many people there. So that showed them that we, that we meant it. So that, that group of commissioners, they did answer the questions um, as they were told, but the next month, that commission just let it go. They just, they just all resigned. Um, those people, again, that's the wealthy people here. That's the people who are in charge. Um, and so, yeah, it, that's a fight. And there are still people who are my friends, who are teachers here, who will not show up at our meetings because they fear some repercussions from some of those people. A lot of the people that we have show up are on, uh, you know, they're older people, so they're already on a check. They don't have to worry about their jobs, um, those type of things. Um, but yeah, there is, there is definitely a fight against it. Martin County 
even though you know it's it's a poor area and um that people talk about oh well you know martin county's just got its own problems because of who you vote in we keep voting in different people but it doesn't matter who you vote in when actually it's the money people that are behind everything so we're not voting on the people who are actually making the decisions because those are the people just with money and they just they're the ones who every time we vote in a different judge executive they quit listening to us and start listening to those people um, and so what I have said is that Martin County is not an outlier. Martin County is a microcosm of what is actually going on. We have leaders that are exactly like, I'm sorry, but Trump, I mean, they are bullies. They are bullies and they try to bully us all the time into shutting up and um and they do bully they do they they are able to because of the fact that there's only one industry which is gone now but the um there's only one man who is has, owns almost all the businesses and he has made sure that he controls everything and his brother-in-law was the water board commissioner the head of the commission that um that quit after the citizens got involved and i asked um why uh they all quit and the county judge executive said well tell you right now they told me why they quit because if the martin county concerned citizens are going to get involved in this investigation they don't want any part of it so citizen involvement is is a problem for those people when it gets noticed publicly we got involved, we tried to after the slurry spill, but we never got any public notice. But when you finally get the public's attention, that is when citizen involvement is scary for these people. They like to work in the dark. Popular participatory democracy relies on the active involvement of individuals and communities committed to being stewards of their own society. Democracy can exist with an apathetic citizenry, but it becomes vulnerable being hijacked by elites. In fact, the powerful hope and assume that the people aren't paying attention. So they can adopt policies that suit their interests and distribute resources to their advantage relegating the poor and dispossessed to the margins. Democracy may be ruled by the people, but it can easily revert to rule over the people if the people fail to remain vigilant. Art Reyes III knows this. We the people of Michigan, the organization he founded following his work in Flint that we heard about in episode three, exists to build people power as a durable community cultivated and nurtured to defend democracy. Um, and I, I think at the core for us at We The People, it was really like grappling with a couple of core questions. Um, one is this, this challenge um, around Michigan being an important electoral state. And as somebody who used to run the Michigan Voice table, right, which is really focused on civic engagement, which is really about voter engagement, a lot of the resources come coinciding with important elections um, being like, look, in, in so many cases, our people are treated like bodies and numbers, like people give a shit about Michigan every two or four years. And suddenly there's an influx of money, which is happening right now, uh, or an influx of national interest, um, because we are of consequence to, you know, the, the national electoral scene, which is important. Um, but uh, Oftentimes what happens, uh, this was certainly for me before I left as part of the reason that I ended up leaving and going to grad school, was that it felt like we're only mobilizing our people and we're treating them as bodies and numbers or as data points and they're just not. And the results of that, um, you know, we, for me it was like, well, I think this is like, this is fucked up because it's using our people for the agenda of other folks, even if there's some alignment there, it's not ours. But also, it was un it's unstrategic in the long run, right? Like it was 
for me, what it felt like was it was building sandcastles, election cycle after election cycle. And sometimes they were big and beautiful and expensive, but they washed away, right? They weren't owned. They were not built like on a solid foundation that were owned by our communities. And so that was one challenge that I'd been wrestling with for a number of years. Um, and the other challenge was that, you know, Michigan is one of the most segregated places in the country. Um, and our politics are shaped by race. Um, and when we have, uh, you know, multi-generational economic devastation in places like Detroit and Flint and Pontiac and Benton Harbor and places that are almost entirely communities of color, predominantly black cities, um, you know, that have had, that have struggled multi-generationally. You know, I'm, 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 I'm 34. There's not people my age who grew up in Flint that are like, remember the good old days, right? It's just like, it's, it, we, it's been in struggle for a long time. Um, and we have that combined with the fact that huge rural parts of our state, the Upper Peninsula has been in a recession since 1992. Um, we have significant other places um, that have also experienced multi-generational economic devastation. And so we've created a very fertile ground for dividing conquer politics that tells some people the reason for your pain is because of others in pain. Um, and it's really rooted in stoking anti-Black racism where people, you know, use say Detroit as synonymous with Black folks, as a dog whistle for Black folks. And a lot of folks put the blame on challenges in the state on Detroit, right, as a way to say, well, this isn't this isn't your fault, right, in, in X, Y, or Z rural place that, like, you're struggling. Like, you know, we know you're struggling. We acknowledge the pain. We know that, like, there's a real lack of any meaningful kind of economic opportunity. And if your kids um, moved away, they're probably never coming back. And if they stuck around, they're probably struggling to find work or maybe caught up in the addiction crisis. But it's not on you. It is that the state doesn't give a shit about you. The state cares about Detroit. But Detroit is corrupt and it can't govern itself. And so it squanders it. That is the narrative that gets built like time after time after time again, particularly in places like Detroit, especially, but also Flint and others um, that, that are rooted in kind of this narrative that says black and brown people, particularly black people, cities that are predominantly black, they can't govern themselves. And so they, they are responsible for the challenges that we're experiencing. It's this kind of classic divide and conquer, but we see that play out in a ton of ways. There's also a xenophobic narrative that blames immigrants for the challenges that we've experienced, particularly with our manufacturing economy. Um, and, you know, and also a lot of Islamophobic rhetoric too, as you know, we have um, a like beautiful, substantial like Arab and Muslim population, particularly in Southeast Michigan, we've seen a lot of fear mongering um, happen around and you know, in, in places further out in the state. So the combination of these things, right, creates this fear-based politics that Trump was certainly able to exploit in 2016, but beyond that have shaped kind of what our state looks like, including things like the emergency management, um, the emergency management law, which is rooted in that. It's prioritizing like, fin like finances over human need. And it is also rooted in a narrative that deeply says that black and brown people can't govern themselves. And so they should not be able to. And so they need oversight by um, folks who are going to make smart financial decisions because they won't. It's rooted in this fundamentally racist, anti-black um, narrative that also advances privatization and austerity at the expense of having sustainable and robust public infrastructure that takes care of people. Um, and so that those are decisions that we've made. So for me, these were these were really big things that were factors around like, well, we, in, in order to, to, to combat this over the long run, in order to make Michigan a place where people can live with dignity, right? But in order to just have the have communities where we can actually have dignity, we, we have to be able to acknowledge a linked fate and build together. And you know, for me, the central question of we the people is that, is, is it possible to build multiracial working class movement that can build aspirational vision of what's the state and communities that we deserve and contend for the governing power that's requisite to, to, to make that happen over time? It's long haul work and it has to be rooted in legitimate real relationships, both an ecosystem of organizations and social justice organizations that are driving in the same direction and acting with trust and deep relationships with each other that you know we're, we're doing and a lot of organizations that we are building with and really love but it is also you know about building 
a sense and a spirit of linked fate um, across communities, whether it's, you know, folks in the Keweenaw Peninsula as far northwest as you can go, um, who have the highest utility rates in the continental U.S. because their utility company, Upco, is 100% owned by a hedge fund and just gouging the shit out of people. So you have people making decisions in the winter about whether or not they can put food on the table or keep their lights on or pay for heat through the utility or just, you know, do a wood burning stove, like making those decisions at the same time that folks in Detroit, you know, are making decisions that I know you all were talking to Mala Monica too, is, you know, she kind of lays out um, a lot around people like having their water shut off in the thousands because there's a lack of water affordability especially for black folks um, in, in the city in places like Detroit and in Flint. And so when you have like these, these things happening, but broader narratives tell people that actually they, you know, they should be blaming each other, then it, it, it serves the purpose of keeping our communities pointing the blame at each other while, you know, in particular corporations and wealthy folks, um, you know, kind of, take everything and, and continue to dominate uh, over, over people. And the results of that are things like the water crisis. Yeah, I think, so I think there's a couple of things that are important. So, you know, one, for sure, like when we started, I did, you know, did five months on the road and I think just meeting with folks. And I think one of the things that's really important is like people are stepping up and fighting in their communities and they're doing it in small ways and in big ways. And in part is, being able to give people some of the tools and the craft to actually do that mindfully and also recognize their struggle as part of a larger struggle, right? Things like I was talking about, like the issue with utilities uh, in the Upper Peninsula or, you know, Line 5, um, and in particular, how that's disastrous, could be disastrous for the Great Lakes, but also, you know, for, for um, you know, our indigenous communities, it is also like they're being cast aside and ignored and sacred waterways that like in in perpetuity their ancestors have stewarded like there's there is you know there, so so some of these things that are happening there's a lot of ways in which people are stepping up and fighting and i think for me part of it was saying how do we help advance the work and weave the work together how do we equip people to fight on the issues that are really important to them locally in their community but also how do we then link those? How do we understand kind of a bigger sense of shared fate? If you step back in a bigger picture for me, part of the question is how do we move people from these communities that I described that in a lot of cases, poor working class folks in a lot of different places that are marginalized and pitted against one another, how do we move from isolation to relationship? How do we begin moving then after we've built relationship, which we've begun to do, moving from relationship to solidarity, where people are willing to have each other's backs to fight for each other when it matters that we've begun to see in really, really big and important ways. And how do we move from solidarity to building collective strategy together to seeing it not as separate fights that we support each other as having each other's backs, but, but actually together we are kind of fighting for, in a broader sense, the, the, the communities that we deserve. And for me, that's long haul work, but we're seeing the glimpses of, of what's possible. I think for me, like I, um, I'm oriented toward, toward optimism, right? I'm oriented toward hope. I think in a lot of ways, like in order to do this type of work, we have to, we have to have an orientation toward hope that like a better future is possible. I think it's really a part of also, you know, my family and my DNA, right? Like that, that, that sentiment, but, but that's not, that's not a, that's not, um, it's not an uncritical hope, right? It's an understanding that like, actually what, what, like, what, what, what gives me hope is that like people are willing to wade through struggle in order to achieve dignity and liberation, right? Like that, like that is possible, but it's only possible, I think, if we also like deeply, deeply love people and deeply love humanity. And like with, with that, like we have to understand that like as humans, like we fuck up, right? We're imperfect. And it is about whether or not we have built enough of the shared relationships, understand a sense of shared values, understand a, a spirit of linked fate that allows us to continue building over time. And I think for me, that like I'm 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 actually deeply hopeful in this in this moment. It's been hard and it's been challenging. You know, in the COVID crisis, I lost a lot of elders who meant a lot to me. You know, I had a cousin who's in the hospital for 85 days. You know, we're we're seeing you know just 
couple of days ago, you know, there's another another young person killed by police in Detroit. Um, the, it, the, the, all of these things that are that are happening, like that, are immensely immensely challenging. It's like I think for me is also trying to see the beauty and what it looks like for people to come together, to dream together, to understand that a better future is possible, but only if we actually love each other. Confluence. Streams coming together to make one. Multiple identities, diverse backgrounds, distinct places of origin, shared circumstances, overlapping experiences, one collective force, one coherent analysis, e pluribus unum, just like on the penny. The water warriors whose stories we shared in this season of Moral Courage Radio looked around for a savior and saw only each other. Their families were getting sick and their governments had abandoned them. Their only option was to build together, to rely on one another, to bring into existence new methods of care, and to imagine new constellations of political organization. This is what deep democracy demands, and in 2021, we know all too well what's at stake. Concerted efforts to undermine core democratic rights, from voting to protest, demonstrate how readily even our flawed system could be further dismantled. U.S. democracy is precarious and increasingly appears to teeter. Nothing is given. Nothing is granted. Institutions won't save us. Courts won't protect us. To borrow from the writer Alice Walker, we are the ones we've been waiting for. This has been Poison and Power the Fight for Water, a Moral Courage Project, a production of the University of Dayton Human Rights Center Improved, Media for Social Justice. We have been your hosts, Designate Butenthal and Grace Gibson. This episode was written by Joel Proust. Our musical score was composed, performed, and produced by Beck Trumbull. And the musical theme was inspired by Jillian Parker. Moral Courage Radio is produced by Joel Proust. Find and follow us across all social media platforms. If you like what you've heard here this season, tell some friends and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.